<laughs> we're recording incidentally and communication so what's happening with you nothing i've just finished my marking it's all coming up in the house but you you said you were unwell yeah i'm just a bit i feel better now i just i just that back of the throat but nothing too bad are you are you better how's your head i don't know yeah like i had a so for, for the listeners because i'm recording this like you know yeah, it can go this, out. Is, this is the spicy content of a crate this is this is this is what this is what people want. This is what people want. People don't want like polished, highfalutin philosophy. They want unscripted babble, and that's what we're going to give them because we've got we've got it in spades. That's so true. But yeah, so like I, I had I had a migraine on Friday. So normally we record on the Friday. Like and people apparently like I mean a tiny minority of the very small number of people who actually listen to this podcast were perturbed by this. Like yeah. there, there are there are avid fans out there who who like a listener, a patriot, who you know sent me a meme about how the podcast was like that he had made. My friend, my friend Tim. Hello, Tim. This is your first uh, first star starring on the podcast. He said his weekend because he listens to the podcast on Sunday morning on a bike ride, and he said his whole weekend was was shot now. Like the whole the schedule's gone. So this is this is the the, the heights that we're now at. The influence. Yeah. This is- this is right, and this is it's it's great. Like we're genuinely upsetting people, doing everything I set out to do. And then my other friend Brendan said, "I want Mark to say this is right, and then directly contradict what you say." <laughs> what was the last bit? Do what? He, I want I want Mark to say this is right and agree with whatever you're saying, and then go on to directly contradict whatever James has said. Right after, so to contradict myself. Yeah, That's what he wants. Yes. So I had some feedback actually. What we're talking about. Okay, yeah. People yep. I had some feedback from a listener. Let's call him Michael L. <laughs> L Simpson. No, that's too obvious. Let's call him M Lazarus. Okay, yep. I know I know of him. Who said who said like the pod, but don't like the music? Well <laughs> to which I say that's not a question, Professor. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, my, yeah, my, Michael's a Michael's a huge Led Zeppelin fan. As far as I know, he only listens to Led Zeppelin, and like I love Led Zeppelin too. But you know, he's obviously not a Crowbar fan. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> I mean, Crowbar like Led Zeppelin. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I guess it's not transitive. I like. I mean, presumably Led Zeppelin don't listen to Crowbar. Like, I, I, mean, I don't, I don't know. know what Robert Plant does. I suspect not. I suspect Robert Plant listens to the blues. I'm stoked that Michael Michael likes the pod though. That's good. Well, maybe he doesn't like the pod, though. He was, like, asking me, you know, I mean, not wasn't a very significant favour, but he was asking me for something. So, like, but if this is what he says when he's asked, I mean, what would he have said if he wasn't asking for something? Don't like the pod or your face. <laughs> I can't handle this stuff. It's too, it's too early in the morning for this. Too many gags. Too many gags. Well, uh, you don't blame me. Blame Michael. Yeah, he's the one who, Michael, like, blame Michael. you know, is, is effectively saying these incredibly rude things by, by saying something that's slightly rude while trying to be nice. So, I sent him a text message the other day of a tradies ute and the, the number plate was Led Zeppelin. And that was that made his day. Right. He didn't say, like Led Zeppelin, <laughs> don't like utes or number plates. <laughs> he did not. No, no, no. <laughs> so do you still have a migraine, Mark? Is it gone? I feel like it's a little bit on a continuum in the sense that, like, although when you, when you get the migraine, it's very discreet. Like, you 
I mean, people do talk about a migraine prodrome, which is kind of a real thing. So I guess it comes on slightly continuously, but there's a, clearly a moment where, where it starts. But the moment where it stops is less clear. But look, I'm burying the lead here because I don't think it's the migraine is not the issue. The issue is that I I have some form of like upper respiratory tract problem. Like I'm very very mucusy. It's back to the and this is, but this you know I've I've I kind of feel like we should have just just pulled the plug on Friday and done it. You know, done done an episode where like Mark has a migraine because you know I feel like this. This is the human condition. I mean, I kind of want to say this is like the postmodern condition, but I mean, you know, this is the human human condition is to be unwell, <laughs> sick, sickness unto death, not in a spiritual sense, but in a literal one, spiritual too, whatever you know, Kierkegaard. This this is this is what we're dealing with, and we need to recognize. I mean, it, it, there's something that is not recognized as this. Where's the recognition? What are you talking about? <laughs> that is that is completely cooked. What are you talking about? Well, that everyone is sick all the time. Explain yourself. This is like a basic plank of my my. I know what to call it. Philosophy. <laughs> There's always something wrong with you. The idea that you know you, you're completely fine. This is like the prevalent model of or understanding of you know, what it is to live as a human being, right? The idea is uh, there's, there's something called normality, which you experience most of the time. And this is punctuated by brief exceptional periods of something called sickness. Or for some people who are, you know, disabled, they, they, they're permanently afflicted with something and therefore a special category of person. And, you know, not to denigrate either the horrors of particular forms of sickness. So, you know, obviously if you have cancer, that's very unfortunate. And most people most of the time do not. Well, actually, it's not true. Most people most of the time do have cancer. You know, literally speaking, they just don't have like malignant, life-threatening cancers. Everybody has any number of things wrong with them all the time. To live is to be sick. The creature is frail. Brian has joined us. Brian, do you have thoughts about this? I'm sure you do. Well, I'm just thinking about what um, prompted this comment because I was about to apologize uh, for my lateness and so forth, and to say I have been inexplicably but ill the last like four or five days, um, uh, and I, I, I still kind of feel like shit. But as you say, it's not. Yeah, I got tested for the virus last week. I don't know what it is. It's the kind of malaise that I've had before. Who the fuck knows what combination of physical, psychosomatic, whatever kind of things it is. Um, we are all, the creature is frail. We are all sick all of the time. I'm also, I also am suffering from the disease of resentment, Mark, because you, as a, as a person in, in lockdown in the hotspot suburbs of Melbourne, you look to me, you, you appear to have quite a fetching and I suspect new mm. haircut. And, uh, and I'm quite, I'm, I'm quite angry about that. So. I mean, the, the truth about this, which may be too shocking, even for me to include in the podcast is that, <laughs> My so it, it goes actually to what we're, we're discussing previously in a, in an oblique way. Most people have discrete haircuts. That is, they have hair. I'm <laughs> just losing it already. What are you talking about? Have... <laughs> 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 
I'm, I'm extremely interested, as I assume everyone else is, in where this is going, right? So, so um, Axiom, <laughs> people have hair, right? Okay. <laughs> that, I mean, that is, that is a given except for people with alopecia. I got it. I got it. No. Don't make me laugh because I'll swivel and then. I think. I think cable. if we if you're not allowed to laugh, then there's there's. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like this isn't going to go well. But okay, so forget forget that premise, which really was unnecessary to state and possibly, as I suggested, false that people have hair. The important thing here: most people, e- everyone else other than me, as far as I can work out, uh, you know basically go, goes and has haircuts yeah. and in between their haircuts their hairs their hair grows now i many years ago began cutting my own hair uh i mean this this began you know when everyone was doing it in the late 90s in england when i started you know shaving my head or cutting it to a kind of grade two however this has evolved over the years into me cutting my own hair all the time in various forms uh, and when I say all the time, I mean all the time. Like, uh, here, here's a pair of scissors that are on my desk. There are various pairs of scissors around my house. I cut my hair on an ongoing rolling basis. It, not as a discreet act of hair cutting, but just like all, all the time, all over the place, which is, is a, hor- a terrifying and horrifying secret, which I've kept hidden until now, except from the, those very closest to me who find hair everywhere. Mark, this seems like the the, the ultimate bullshit humble brag here because your hair looks amazing. So as if you were just <laughs> chopping away at it with a pair of like paper scissors, this is this is clearly bullshit. <laughs> it's not, but this is <laughs> completely with James on on, on on this and the humble. It's like oh, I just you know it just, I it up, just sort of I woke up like this. Like <laughs> yeah, this is no, but this this is this is due to the fact that I've been doing this now for like whatever. 15 years right? by qualification you're a barber now but well given that as i cut hair like throughout the day every day pretty much so i and i had a brief period right so this started when i moved to melbourne in 2013 when i went you know when i started working at monash i felt you know i've got some money now relative to having being on the dole like beginning of 2013 i was on new start and then mid-2013 i got a job at monash and I was like, I've, I've got more money coming in than ever before. Um, and maybe, I, and I want to kind of look the part. So I went and got a professional haircut in Melbourne. I started going to a, a barber in Melbourne and then I actually continued that after I moved back to Sydney. So for quite a few years there, I was not cutting my own hair and was going to barber. But when I went to that barber in Melbourne the first time and I told him, well, actually I've been cutting my own hair, uh, you know, for the last 10 years or whatever. He said that, he was he could not cut his own hair as well as i had so that that that's not a that's not humble that's just a brag <laughs> um is it castration anxiety <laughs> or a way, a way of dealing with the fact that you, you you this this reference i i feel that is far from innocuous that you you I believe I quote you, you literally cut your hair all the time. Like, here are the scissors. Like, not a day goes by. Every minute, you bring the blade, yeah, close to your flesh. <laughs> and yet you endure and come out stylish. I mm. This checks out. Brian is on the money here. This absolutely checks out. <laughs> yeah, I, thank you, James. Uh, how do you feel about the, um, uh, the uh, vagina? <laughs> you know, okay, so... <laughs> 
Just, just out of changing this topic or not. I actually, I have, like, as a child, literally had the vagina dentata drink. But I assume I'm not the only one. I mean, that's why it's why it's a meme. If I if I respond to statements like that with my uh, with credulity, there's going to be like an extracted like Brian is an idiot. Like, yeah. uh, regardless, uh, regardless, yeah. you're finished. Like this. this. <laughs> <laughs> because it's it's misogynistic to have the vagina dentata dream. My unconscious has been cancelled. <laughs> this is just well, I mean, isn't isn't that one of the characteristics of the unconscious that it it is likely to do what it does all the more so in the face of the threat of cancellation? Hundred percent, which is why, you know, so yeah, that's I mean what what better point could there be? Like, that's right. And it's it's radically uncontrollable, doesn't care about reality. Everyone, but this is the, the bottom line is every everyone's id now is telling them all the time to say the n-word. <laughs> like but, but, and there's and there's no way to prevent that because because of the, the, the strength of taboo, the more it becomes taboo, the, the more the impulse is there. Which is why, which is why, you know, I always thought. You know, you know, uh, PewDiePie's bridge incident. Maybe you don't. No, I, think so PewDiePie, I mean, PewDiePie incredibly ha- has not formally been cancelled yet, despite many, many very serious attempts to cancel him. The closest PewDiePie got to to real cancellation. Well, there's two incidents really. There's the one where he paid Indian people to say <laughs> he went on um, Fiverr and, and paid these Indian people to to hold up a sign saying something anti-Semitic. Death to, the Jews. Wow. Death to the Jews, I think. Anyway. So he was he was going for a double kind well, of exploitative racism, anti-Semitism. The, 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 point, the point of it as a kind of prank was to see how far you could go with Fiverr's system and the lack of controls on Fiverr, basically. So he it was number of, one of a number of series of, of offensive messages he tried to get through Fiverr's ordering system. And it was the one that succeeded and then he put it in his show and then he got new. Right, right. But the the probably the, the the worst one was an incident where he was he was playing PUBG and um got shot by someone who was camping or whatever and said on on a stream, although this stream wasn't a live stream, I don't even know how this footage came came to light, but he said what an N-word in reference to the person who shot it. Wow. And this yeah, so how did he get away with that? I don't know. But basically didn't didn't get totally cancelled i mean one of the excuses was he's swedish uh consequently is not not aware of that were they just where that word is completely innocuous i didn't think that means friend no i no but 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 here's here's the thing that interests me about this and what i want to get onto which is pewdiepie apologized very forthrightly for it and right obviously one reason he felt didn't get cancelled but he he also he always refers to it in the past when he referred to it as his as his quote slip up, and I always thought this was really ridiculous, right? It's a ridiculous way to characterise it because the 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 implication is, you know, you're constantly wanting to say the n word and you slipped up and just said it, and you're like, oh, terribly yeah, sorry, I yeah. slipped up. The rest of the time, I'm going to keep it in check. But actually, I think basically that's right, in the sense that there's a powerful impulse. Anyone who's aware of the existence of that taboo, which is basically everyone, uh, 
there's a powerful impulse to say it, which one finds online all the time. Like, but, you know, N-word is banded around online a lot. I mean, when I say online, I, I don't mean on Twitter where it will get you banned immediately. I mean, in video games, where it will also get you banned, but through a process of people complaining about it. Um, so, yeah, and, and precisely because I think it's, it's the most transgressive thing you can say. So it, it's gamers love to say the N-word because it's the most offensive word there is now bar nothing there is no word that is more more generally offensive in the english language so just as people used to revel in saying the c word because that was the most offensive word you could say i <laughs> stunned silence I, 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 that i remember thinking that we slightly got wrong last week is i think that's a bit where we're kind of doing a parenthetical sort of um what is the big other in lacan and that's that's not the easiest thing to explain and i i i think you well, maybe maybe I said this, but one of us says something like, oh, you know, I, I see it as a bit like Freud's superego, right? And I think one of the reasons that that's not technically correct, not, not that the audience is, I think, um, you know, let's not go into the details about the, the big other, but I think is the way that the superego, and, and I think this is interesting because of the way psychoanalysis has come into popular culture, that people who've never read Freud understand some basic psychoanalytic concepts but one of the things that's missing is uh psychoanalysis in popular culture but i think one of the things that hasn't penetrated into popular culture enough is that i think for freud particularly read through lacanian lens there's a kind of alliance between the superego and the id as opposed to the ego which is actually often not just balancing individual desires or whatever against or, or primordial desires against social imperatives but often the ego is the bit that's saying ah no this is social reality these are the exigencies of social reality whereas actually yeah i, I think a, a sort of really basic psychoanalytic point is that the superego and the id feed off each other yeah, that's absolutely that's absolutely right very important corrective and you're quite right to, to suggest that i was basically wrong in what i said last time about about the idea of the the superego being associated with the bigger i mean there's some some form of association let's say but you know this is absolutely right on, on freud's reading the superego is take, drawing its energy i think that's the kind of the, the way freud would put it in this kind of libidinal model like drawing its energy from the id and of course this is exactly what winston sees in we've already referred to it cancel culture which is people who are using a kind of superegotic excuse that is you know a kind of supposedly superior morality just as people always have to unleash their most feral violent urges against people i mean it's from a, from a psychoanalytic point of view very clearly what we're seeing you know when you see a statue being toppled right it's you know people using an excuse superego driven excuse this is a moral crusade to do something very, very libidinal, which is normally forbidden. But it, this is also true from the other side. I mean, it's also true that you know, people who, who revel in saying the N-word, of course, are serving their id, but they also have an elevated super-ergotic explanation in terms of this kind of you know, need to, to engage in free speech or, or you know, whatever their kind of racist worldview is, etc. I guess this is maybe a normie question, but... I mean, it's undoubtedly true that huge sort of, you know, portions of the internet are that way. And whether that's an expression of the year is probably true, etc. But I guess my question is sort of broader. And it's just why is the internet that way? 
like, you know, why is it that we've sort of fallen into this kind of, you know, uh, again, I don't, this is perhaps a dubious uh, phrase, but, you know, why is it so adolescent? You know, why, like, why is it that like sort of the, like portions of, like, you know, sort of what would have 10 years ago been associated with, say, you know, the deepest recesses of like nerdy gamer culture has become, has kind of infiltrated to become kind of the norm of a lot of internet discourse. Uh, Mark, I think you probably disagree with this take, or at least you have something to say about it, but I, I, I'm not really sure. I just, I guess my, it's more, mine's more of a historical question is that how did we get here and why is that the case? Because it doesn't seem to me just the case that what happens on the internet is an expression of kind of, you know, the unconscious. Although, of course, there must be a dimension of that. There has to be. But there also it also seems that there's been, like, historically a series of norms that have now kind of become sedimented within the ways in which, you know, discourse works on the internet what what concretely are you referring to like i'm not sure i even recognize what you're talking about um uh, i'm thinking more into well I'm, t- I'm i'm talking about what you were talking about in terms of the ways in which uh, say on the ways in which people want to use say for example uh, offensive words in the in the gaming world but also that then that then goes into say forums or um reddit um, not so much reddit but you know um 4chan that kind of that kind of underbelly of of the uh, of the internet look i mean i've got to admit i i at this point i i guess i have some cognitive dissonance going on because my, historically my take on this stuff has always been deflationary right i don't think the technology is really that adding adding that much difference i mean this this goes against what i was saying last time which i also now think simultaneously somehow that all this technology is a catastrophe but I kind of somehow believe both of them are true, namely that all the technology, I mean, the technology hasn't changed things in the ways people think it has. And I think it's changed a bunch of stuff that people, I mean, are kind of aware of, but don't realize how deep it goes. I mean, that is, I I think the internet has not had a serious effect in changing ephemeral and unimportant aspects of culture which people now think are important which they're very focused on but it's changed the very you know deep structure of our existence in a way that has caused us to focus on ephemera so when we talk about the use of offensive language for example right thinking back to my high school experience in the 1990s basically pre-internet existed but no one i was at high school with was on it it was a cesspit of, of the most virulent racism which you know in all honesty, I was utterly disgusted by and indeed like was bullied for opposing, right? And they weren't, you know, playing Call of Duty. They were throwing like empty drink cans at each other. It was a popular game in my high school. You try and try and hit someone in the head with a you crush it crush the can down so it was like a quite a mean, sharp projectile and throw it at each other, right? Because because they didn't have Call of Duty. One of the things about this that differentiates it from now is that that was undiscoverable. Like you couldn't be like a you know, reporter from BuzzFeed and stumble upon like the, the common room at my high school and discover that everyone was using racially charged language. So it, it's just, it was totally hit. It was now you can stumble upon the forum. I mean, it is forums. Admittedly, people aren't in CSGO discovering how people talk. Like the BuzzFeed journalists haven't gone and done exposés and that. because If they did, they'd be pretty shocked, I imagine. That's kind of what I'm saying is that, you know, in some ways... You're right that the schoolyard has always been like that. But then as the internet in the late 90s, early 2000s sort of became more ubiquitous, some of the first uh, users were teenagers, 
I mean, I don't mean I don't mean users of the internet per se, but users of the internet in its kind of social form. And wouldn't it be wouldn't it be fair to say that an element of that kind of you know adolescent politics kind of enters the sort of the foundation of the way in which those norms work? I mean, I, I really don't know here. I'm 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 just just thinking out loud. Okay, this may be a trivial thing to say about the internet, but uh, in terms of the whole question of you know, does it radically change everything kind of reorient subjectivity which is kind of the line we were we were running last week similar to mark i'm also tempted to say this kind of contradictory it changes everything and yet doesn't but um one thing that occurred to me is that it seems that one of the more obvious things about the internet and and especially about social media, I think is the ambiguity or even the indistinction of public and private space, right? So when I think of Mark's schoolyard and so forth, as he said, there's no BuzzFeed reporter, right? Like, so there are these kids, they're talking to each other, they're being shitheads in various ways and among other things that they were racist. But from the, the beginnings of witnessing social media something that i i've never ceased to be uh, struck about it is the way that huh, some people seem to me to use it as a kind of personal space right like as a space where they can uh, seemingly in their minds express their authentic subjectivities right uh, and th but this is e exceptionally weird because it's also like you're speaking to a bunch of anonymous strangers at, at any given time so just a, a quick thing about this one, my experience with uh, Facebook, right? So I had a Facebook account for like nine months in 2011 or something like that. And I really, really hated it. Like last week we were talking about the the addictive powers of, of, of social media and so forth. I never felt this with Facebook, which perhaps uh, is a completely different entity now, 10 years later or something like that. But the reason I hated it, and I think, I, I mean, I only bothered to tell this anecdote because I think it's, I think my response can't have been wildly idiosyncratic is I, first of all, it was composed of people who, with whom I was uh, vaguely acquainted, right? But in a social mode that I kind of despised and it just made me incredibly misanthropic that this was, this was everyone in a mode of self-presentation, but I simultaneously, I think, resented the performative aspect of that and found everyone incredibly boring by virtue of its life. Everyone was doing a performance for each other, but they were performing being themselves. <laughs> by, by contrast, one of the, uh, even though it has similar phenomena, kind of saving graces, uh, by contrast uh, with something like Twitter when I joined it, is I thought there are people actually doing things like trying to be funny right or trying to share something that's interesting and often i think taking a certain distance to the idea that they're expressing themselves as the persona that is brian mark etc and that this is something that has made me have this ambivalent relationship to twitter whereas whereas facebook there, there was a kind of a worst of all worlds combination of people in almost job interview like putting their best selves forwards and extraordinary the extraordinary kind of banality of everyday subjectivity right but but there's a there's a different cut i think that ambiguity exists also on twitter but slightly differently which is maybe something to 
I'm not sure this was relevant to James's question, actually. <laughs> I think that it's... No, I wouldn't worry about that. No offense, James. But uh, no, I have a spontaneous theorization of this, yeah. right? And in, in line with what I was saying before. Is it st- what strikes me about this? So my first thought, you say this about Facebook, is yes, but isn't that what everyone's like these days anyway? Or, you know, wasn't it ever thus? Yeah. And my, but my second thought is, you know, that's true. What you're identifying is the fact that Facebook and Twitter in different ways reduce the social to a, a kind of very narrow band. It's a different band. So Facebook is this almost LinkedIn-like self-presentation, but like the personal side of your life rather than the purely professional, uh, which is something people do. They do perform their, their you know, roles in that way in the wider world, but with a whole bunch of other stuff going on, which we can loosely refer to when it includes the real, that's one thing that's missing, going back to what we were talking about last time. So there's a pure symbolization. The real's been excised to a large degree, and also a whole bunch of other symbolic noise, which normally accompanies that stuff, which might be much more interesting is removed. So it's this very, very clean and uninteresting signal. Uh, Twitter, I think, basically does the same thing, but with different... I mean, it, restriction is, is explicitly what Twitter was all about, restricting communication to, to a certain number of characters. It's all about a kind of minimization. And that is what's attractive about this, right? The idea that you're getting like bite-sized chunks of information, um, but it, it's also what makes them literally, and I, I want to say this in the strongest possible terms, hellish. It's literally like being in hell to experience sociality so deprived, to have this tiny positive band. But I feel like what people misunderstand about this, and I think my previous attempts to think about it were were caught in this, is that they try to understand the problem as a positive problem. It's like there's stuff going on on these mediums which doesn't normally go on. That's I think I think that's a real mistake. It's the lack, the weird lacks that really, really mark them out. I think I think that's that's really good, Mark. As in because it links back also to the our, our opening conversation i think i think if I, I i identified something in that it's almost like what we're talking about is the the lack of an unconscious right as in as in not you know it's not saying oh you know what i do is i i miss everyone being like appallingly racist or something like that but it's somehow in the mode of sociality of of kind of continual self-presentation and everyone else responding to other people's self-presentation with more self-presentation. Those those kind of errant things that kind of push the limits of symbolization, right? Like little parapraxies and so forth, which everyone is is so careful to curate out of existence in their in their self-presentation but but these are actually some of the most uh, sympathetic aspects of of real human beings right like I, a, a silly analogy that occurs to me although perhaps says too much about myself is that i always uh, in, enjoyed in social situations i'm fairly anti-social and misanthropic but kind of a moment at like 4am or so after a party or something when everyone had sort of done their serious drinking flirting dancing whatever they were doing and would be in this kind of um semi-catatonic mode in which they'd often sort of let things through kind of moments of vulnerability or or despair or something like that and uh, yeah you, you the the medium 
is or, or the way people act in relation to the medium is to is is to kind of prevent that sort of thing from ever emerging. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think to just slightly expand on what I was saying before. I mean, it occurs to me that you know what we're seeing on social media is to use a word that's in vogue, and I think for good reason, although it's uh, of course associated with with problematic people. It's signaling taking over from the content or signaling actually becoming the content. So normally when you communicate, you do signal, but there's also a whole bunch of other stuff going on. But in social media, signaling becomes the main thing. That's that's really good. James, I feel we've moved a bit away from your initial question that was kind of lost in the... But I I was interested by what you said and would, would kind of like to come back to it. No, I don't think. I think. I think Mark was right in the sense that it was a bit cursed. But I, I think. I think it was more of a historical question in in the sense that I, I'm. I'm interested. I think the psychological dimension of of uh, social media is fascinating. But I'm also interested in the history of the internet, partly because it's almost exactly contemporary with me in the sense that it kind of became serious at about the time I reached adolescence, sort of twelve, like ten, eleven, twelve. And it's a genuine question and this is, I don't really know how we got here in the sense that could the internet have been otherwise? Like I know we, we all know the, the familiar narrative of, you know, there was the kind of uh, promise of the internet in the 1990s, the, the hacker utopianism that we, we're all, it's almost a trope now. And now we know that the internet is basically controlled by three or four companies. And that obviously reduces the possibilities of the internet. The internet is obviously just, just a medium. And so my question, it, it, it obviously intersects with what we're asking because the internet has turned into, at least for the majority of people, it has turned into a kind of symbolising form of communication where nothing actually happens. And we, and we're, as we talked about it last week, we're addicted to it, even though, as, as Mark says, I agree, it's literally hell, even though we, 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 can't, we can't go without it, or at least most of us can't go without it in some form. So mine is a genuine question in the sense that I don't really know how it, happened this way and could it have been otherwise i'm, I'm genuinely curious i don't know but if i try to push the technology to one side and kind of uh quasi historicize it one of the things that it seems to me might be going on this is this is pretty tentative but uh, i think a lot of social communication on on the internet almost hmm, presupposes something like the absence of society or to be more specific like like the the kind of thatcherite idea having you know having become prophecy uh, as a result of of those kind of policies neoliberal policies is is the lack of something like a a social bond that links some sort of common essence of of humanity together despite the different presentations of subjectivity i I, it's it's something something that would be kind of and i think every society has had it like that has a sort of uh eucharistic function almost right that says that says you are you as sole individual but you are also part of the all or the or the everyone i think i think yeah i yeah i guess the question is to, to, to circle back slightly to what you were saying is that if social media is sort of so unpleasant is the reason that people continue to do it or engage in it is it just a matter of sort of biological addiction like is it really that banal like i'm i have doubts about that in the sense that because it it, mark you're shaking your head because obviously i it's as you say you know we're gonna there's there's a freudian answer to this one of the 
best lines of all the great lines of Freud. It says, you know, the, the organic explains almost nothing psychologically. Like, you know, Freud, I mean, Freud, you know, leaves the door open. And of course, you know, you, you'll certainly get a, a, a crowd of, of um, neuro ghouls who will want to say that actually now, what with MRIs, we can explain everything using organic. But, you know, it, it's the, bio, biological addiction. I mean, it explains why rats addicted to heroin stop eating, I suppose. I'm not sure. Actually, you know what? It doesn't explain that. In fact, we know it doesn't explain that because they've done the experiments with rats that weren't in the lab and they didn't get addicted to heroin, right? Rats get addicted to heroin if you keep them in a cage and give them heroin. If you put them in a, in a, in a rich environment outdoors, they can't, you can't get them to get addicted to heroin. They're not interested in it. There's, that's, the, that's the empirical data. And the, the bottom line with this stuff is, yeah, this psychological addiction, I mean, that, that's the only kind of addiction. It's psychological. And that's the only reasonable explanation. I mean, this kind of idea, uh, you know, I mean, okay, sure. Some people have more of a genetic predisposition to X than, than others. That can explain part of it. You know, there's, there's nothing in the human that doesn't have some organic component. But the bottom line is addiction is a psychological problem. And there's no getting around that for human beings because, well, not just we're all sick, which is pretty mundane and organic, but we're all spiritually sick, right? We're all unhappy. And as long as that's, that's the case, there's a need for some form of suturing. And, you know, people are going to look for it in the wrong places. Uh, which, which I would, <laughs> I would suggest includes social media. Um, but I don't say this, uh, you know, as, as one without sin, uh, given that I spent most of yesterday playing Warhammer 40,000 Sanctus Reach, which is, is really good. <laughs> like, I think the best, the best of the, the many, many, many Warhammer 40,000 video games. I'm not sure how, how well our uh, audience knows um, Warhammer uh, 40,000, but I was talking uh, 40K, uh, the, but the uh, one thing that brought you, James and Mark, together is kind of love of metal right and if there are metal fans that don't know about warhammer 40,000 i think i think that they will have as, as in if you imagine at least in my with my limited knowledge of what the aesthetic of metal is and then what War, warhammer 40,000 they are they are yeah the one is the latter is a kind of apotheosis of the former in my nerdy opinion <laughs> This is correct, and and I mean, possibly as someone who's you know not not I don't know I don't know how well versed you are either in Warhammer or in Metal, Brian. But yeah, if you're a metal fan, you haven't heard of Warhammer Forty Thousand. That implies you a metal fan. You haven't heard of Bolt Thrower. In which case, are you really a metal yeah, fan? Yeah, by by definition, you're a poser. Like this, there is no there is no in between. Yeah, I don't know what Bolt Thrower. <laughs> but 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 I'm not claiming to be a metal fan. Thinking, thinking about how one of your earliest episodes was about the the pandemic, right? The coronavirus, and now uh, politically we have this thing in in Melbourne where um, I've got these housing estates locked down, right, by excessive numbers of cop, horrifying in, in various ways. A strange connection that I was thinking bet between these kind of political, really biopolitical phenomena and what we're talking about when we're talking about social media that, that occurred to me is, I think 
one of the maybe one of the reasons I, I, I suspect all three of us are both willing to say kind of condemnatory things about social media and that, but that we also want to back away from this. I think I, I, I want to say something like that. It's almost like the only politics that we have, I'm not, you know, apologies to various activists and so forth, but I mean the kind of dominant uh, parliamentary product is a kind of biopolitics that treats everything in vaguely epidemiological terms, right? It's like there's an actual virus, there's an actual pandemic, but various forms of social social suffering or whatever, even uh, uh, poverty, whatever, like um, everything gets treated in this kind of art. What this needs to be dealt with is it needs to be dealt with at the level of the management of populations, right? In the name of security for the protection of life and that we see a number of kind of horrifying phenomena managerial neoliberal and kind of proto-fascist emanating from this securitization of all things it's like what is to be done with the spiritual sickness mark talks about the internet well some other kind of managerial intervention but i think for us maybe the if we're talking about causes coming back to james's questions of all of this there is something about this politics or social bonds only existing at the level of the management of populations that is the cause of a lot of this but also the only place where people can look for solutions here i have to go back to what i was saying when you came in brian i'm not sure how much of it you heard but this absolute insistence that i have theoretically that sickness is ubiquitous, right? It's so important because this arc of pathologization you're talking about, everything is understood on this model of pathology, which itself is pretty recent, right? It's, it's a late 18th century model of what sickness is. I mean, the, before that, it was understood in very different ways. This idea of infectious sickness, which is curable. Yes. And that there's a certain rarity of sickness. So if people are sick, if there's a social sickness, it's something discrete, unusual, which can be isolated and cured. This is, of course, the, the response to COVID-19. When, when we're actually dealing with genuine epidemiology and sickness, I think this model probably is the best we have. I don't have a problem with it, right? The, the problem, as you suggest, is when everything is treated as a pandemic or as a sickness. Yes. Right? And so when I talk about spiritual sickness, right? I mean, was, we're alluding specifically to, to Kierkegaard's sick, unto death, right? That to me is not problematic in the same way because it's understood as ubiquitous, right? If the human condition is to be sick, it's not like, oh, we just need a quick fix cure that I'm going to feel fine and go back That's to, right. to, to boxercise, <laughs> right? And yeah, this, this to me is the, the kind of solution to this problem, which is, you know, I mean, it's, it's the opposite way. Right? One way is not to pathologize anything. Let's not characterize anything as sickness. But I, I think, you know, characterizing everything as sickness effectively would be the same, same gesture, right? Now the cultural logic to, to tie your identity to a specific form of, of malady, let's say. I mean, it's not always really explicitly on the model of sickness, but a generic problem, which affects me specifically, I as an individual can be characterized as having the following issues. And there are cures to these. And if they're not being cured, it is the fault of systemic problems, which, which must be overcome through, you know, the, the cleansing fire of revolution. You know, much though that might be attractive, I feel like it's a um, fool's errand. Hmm. Can, can I ask whether what you would think of the, the following, right? So 
but clearly um, you're not concerned with being <laughs> cancelled, right? When you say something that from, from your from your anti-revolutionary uh, stance and so forth. But I'm going to read what you're saying as as um, not necessarily starting from an objection to certain forms of like left le well hmm, to, that your that your position is not that of a kind of blanket objection to left-wing politics even maybe to the idea of revolution although perhaps you want to say something about that but but part of what you're saying reminds me of a line i think that you can essentially extract from someone like althazer which has to do with the the need to distinguish alienation from exploitation right so alpha zero is like you know as a marxist right exploitation which follows from capitalist system is something that you can do something about right but that if you confuse that as we have a tendency to do with things that belong to the human condition you actually kind of vitiate the the political projects that you want to undertake that that i i hear in what you're saying an, an objection to kind of acting as if everything something like well you mentioned Kierkegaard the sickness unto death is is despair famously the first stage of it is not realizing that one is in despair that all such things can be given kind of technical solutions right that you can manage them out of existence is it, it, it that your complaint mark that we we as a society like have failed to differentiate between the things that say do lend themselves to let's say political solutions and those that don't and that the political model that we might implicitly have is a kind of technical one is that is that the critique or did i no i'm thinking very intently about what you're saying um and i'm, I'm not entirely sure what i do think about it i mean when we talk about yeah when we talk about the political we surely we mean a technical model mm. like i mean we can you can go back to athens and you know find a, a non-technical politics maybe but it's this the kind of politeia is not what we mean by ancient greeks is not what we mean by politics um i don't think there are political solutions to spiritual problems or psychological problems yes I think that's that's I'd, I'd go that far, but you know it's not to say that there aren't actually. It's just I mean I'm kind of agnostic about them. But my problem is is that the contemporary enthusiast tends to believe that that all all problems have a political solution. I mean certainly what I used to believe in a kind of earlier earlier kind of leftist incarnation that all my problems were essentially political, and that that was the appropriate field on which which to solve them, like. If I had personal problems that I hadn't worked out, they were to do with, you know, uh, it's impossible for me to solve these under capitalism because I'm too alienated and don't have the time. And and if we could just get rid of capitalism, I could frolic freely in the the, the meadows, and and um, then I, then I would have no problems. Which, you know, I mean, it's very hard to contradict that. Like I still, I mean, you know, I, I still find a kind of William Morris utopia very attractive as a kind of idea, but. Like I don't, I'm, I'm not going to say that if we abolish capitalism, it wouldn't like be be like the kind of Simpsons world without lawyers. I, I just think uh, th there's a genuine there's a genuine danger that you know, absent the vicissitudes of capitalism, we'd all fall, for example, to addiction. Like I mean, you know, the kind of brave new world thing. Like you know, if you if you if you cut people's work hours, they just take more drugs. Like I mean, I I even feel like there's 
you know, the, the kind of the, the corners of the left that, that more or less embrace this. Like, you know, that a very kind of pro-drug and would be like, yeah, that's great. Like, you know, if, I, if it weren't for capitalism, I'd just be doing edibles the entire time. Which, and you know, I mean, if that's what, if that, if that's what you want, but I guess, but actually no one is putting it in those terms, right? Like, and I think, I think there's a reason for that. I think there's a reason no one is saying, let's get rid of capitalism so that we can take as many high grade drugs as we want and have no repercussions. I feel like your, 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 your straight edge punk past is coming out here, Mark. The sort of asceticism, the, uh, the suspicion of the, of the, of the other realms. Because I think I fall on the other side of this divide, right? This is, this is I think, one of our first discussions we ever had, is that yeah, whether abstaining or dropping out is the political move, par excellence. You know, I think that's where we, where we separate it. Right, because I thought ascasis is like aligned with radical politics. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess that's right. I mean, I guess what you'd, you'd have to say about me is my commitment to ascasis is higher than my commitment to to radical politics because I'm beginning to suspect, you know, suspect what was always obvious, which is all these commies are actually druggies. <laughs> this is, this is, this, this actually sums up your, your entire worldview. I realized this is, this actually sums up all of your interests and, and most of your political positions. So that's, that's good. I'm glad, I'm glad that we, we got there. Got there at the yeah, we got there in the end. This is all still maybe maybe James, you can tell me more about because that uh, this is slightly mysterious to me because I I feel I'm partially sympathetic to what Mark is saying, but but that we may have a disagree. It it's the way I'd put this, but I'm not sure how compatible it is without your saying. I mean, Mark, we had a we had a conversation on uh, what I called the um, uh, leftist Augustinianism, right? And I, I feel there's some of this in, in what you're saying, but, but to me, the, the very idea that capital is respo- capitalism is responsible for uh, so many of our social woes, which is, is something that I, I still believe, right? But to me, what comes with that is the idea that if that is true, no one is innocent and therefore one of the strangest phenomenon on the left is a kind of individualized moralism right like often interestingly linked to the epidemiological stuff that we were we were talking about before like like i'm a good person because i'm i'm stopping the the spread of other people's kind of non-left-wing contagion or, or 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 something like that whereas whereas i think it follows from the idea that the problems have a systemic origin that uh, no individual can be good under the situation. I, I, I suppose I'm heading towards a sort of Adornian minimum moralia kind of, you know, wrong life cannot be le- uh, lived rightly. But one of the strange things about certain aspects of the left, of maybe the liberal left, is that it simultaneously talks about systemic problems and uh seems enamored with a kind of individual moralizing particularly on social media and and, and this has always been dissonant for, for me but i'm not sure how much what i'm saying kind of uh is continuous with what you're saying or or not one thing i want to want to say actually which you know is important probably to affirm not so much because I'm worried about being cancelled, because I think, I mean, he touched this earlier that he said, I'm not worried about being cancelled. I mean, I'm intensely worried about being cancelled. 
right? And uh, I, but I take it that something that you know th- things have not yet got to the point. Obviously, otherwise we wouldn't be living in capitalism anymore, where you can't say that you're, you know, you, you, it's no, it's not yet obligatory to say you're anti-capitalist or revolutionary. Clearly, and I, I, I can't see how that could possibly be the case, you know. And I, but and I wish it were. So this is the like I, I, you know, I, I have not resolved my anti-capitalism. I think capitalism is inherently evil. Put it in those strongest terms I can. So I, I want to get rid of capitalism. What what I've been wary about for a long time, and I'm currently you know warier of than ever, is the the logic of totalization that says every problem is due to capitalism. So sure, we can say it makes every problem worse, maybe, right? exacerbates every problem, but like, it's not the root cause of basically anything other than capitalism itself. And, and I mean, alienation, if you want to talk about that as being the kind of affective corollary of capitalism, but it's not the cause of mental illness. It's not the cause of drug addiction. It's not the cause of misogyny or racism or homophobia. And that's not to say that we can cure these things within capitalism necessarily, but it's not the root cause either. The idea that there's a single single kind of magic bullet revolution which puts an end to all the world's problems, I, I think is a kind of very potent lure. I, I'm interested what, to know what Brian thinks about what you said, Mark, because uh, this is something that I've always grappled with and this comes back to, this comes back to you know, my own personal history. You know, I had a very cringy period of, listening to a lot of punk and reading a lot of anarchist literature and you know and then I sort of then I had you know various phases but I've always been suspicious of uh of of what you describe and I've always thought that there is a sort of in in, at least in some revolutionary um politics or, or or philosophies there's a sort of lurking romanticism about what the human the human being is and what the human being could be maybe romanticism is not the right word there and so which is not to say that capitalism doesn't make things or indeed all things worse. I suppose what I mean by the Augustinian thing is that this may seem counterintuitive, but I think a lot of people on the left who are anti-capitalism think that it's necessary in order to be on the Marxist left, right, to actually... uh, embrace a certain positive vision of human beings perhaps a romantic vision of human beings right like so that when we strip ourselves of these uh well actually it's a it's a sort of subtractive model right it's it's kind of like we'd be glorious uh kind uh loving human beings if only we could subtract like this perverse form of economic governance that um leads to so much horror and while i uh, my position on this, though, is is that it's essentially anti-capitalism is compatible with the idea. Marxism is compatible, and and I even think most effective against, I suppose, this received idea when it starts from the presupposition that human beings are actually shit, right? That that far from being mutually exclusive, right? I I, I actually think it gives ammunition or, or to uh, to a to a a radical cause right to accept uh and and 
analyze certain aspects of human depravity, right? And it's always struck me as surprising that this is considered counterintuitive to the point of anathema in in some circles. But to me, they've they've always they've always gone gone together. This is this is why I suppose I mentioned. Althusser, right? There is a part of what Althusser calls humanism as an enemy on the of the left is the idea that the kind of celebration of the human being and their and their virtues is to some extent um, prerequisite of um, making a better world or fighting capitalism. And I do not think this is the case. Like to the point where I, I think the opposite. Why I find someone like Adorno so compelling because he sort of gives you this, uh, a Marxist idea, which also takes someone like say Freud seriously. And the idea would be, you know, history is a disaster and probably always will be, but you must always act as if it could be otherwise, you know, and that's, that's, that's the differentiation, or at least how, how I would take it. Um, that it, even if the future looks unbelievably bleak, one must act as if it could be otherwise. Yes, absolutely. I, I think, for example, that one of the things that's required to contest capitalism or to take capitalism seriously is is to think that it is not just an excrescence, although it does have that. It has it, it certainly has excrescent features, but but that if we think of capitalism as a totality, then we are its uh, products, right? We are subjectivized through it and so forth. And I just think the idea that that one can kind of easily dissociate it right like i've i've read a few lines of marx or i'm retweeting some kind of lefty things that i'm now outside of capitalism by virtue of taking a kind of personal stance against it like i dislike it and find it bad therefore i'm now the antithesis of capitalism is to not understand anything about the way capitalism works i mean something i've always liked on this is um uh Walter benjamin's little fragment uh, I, I think you know this one uh james capitalism is as religion where one of the things he says is that capitalism is a cultic religion without dogma right and so that means one is obedient to it through orthopraxis not through orthodoxy that capitalism doesn't require people to say or at least it doesn't require everyone to say gee, I really love capitalism, it's so great. In fact, on the contrary, like, like as far as capital is concerned, it's indifferent whether I like order from Amazon, yeah, copies of like capital or, or the Quran, right? Or, uh, you know, libertarians first uh, storybook or, or something like that. Like as in it's, it's the, it's ritual-like obedience to it and yeah i think it is kind of pre-marxist and naive pre-hegelian really to to kind of think uh well that it's basically liberal to believe that simply as a kind of expressible identity or something subject position i can render myself outside and antithetical to to capitalism yeah, that that sounds right to me. That's that's really really interesting. That's, I'm glad you brought up um, Benjamin because that's I think that's such a I haven't read it for years actually, but it's it's such a powerful little essay. Um, uh, so I wouldn't even how many pages? It's not not even three essay, pages. Really. Yeah, yeah right. sort of an exit. Um, I think that's exactly right. Um, Mark, um, the thing that's occurring to me is to ask: Who are you talking about, Brian? Who believes that they can 
exempt themselves from capitalism. I mean, the the interesting thing is, I'm 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 not sure I'm not sure that anyone believes this. Liberalism dominates our imagination, right? To to the extent that I think even when one uh, says things about the the totalizing systemic nature of capitalism, there's still a tendency to express this in kind of moral in individualistic terms right like, like i suppose a, a, maybe maybe i'd put it this way a, a tendency to treat anti-capitalism as, as almost a a lifestyle ascesis or something like that but but that of course part of the nature of capitalism is that it will just sell lifestyles and yeah aesthetic practices and 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 so forth that this is not not an outside but yeah maybe maybe it is a confection of my imagination that that people have this i mean it seems like there's a there's a very obvious kind of imminent contradiction here between believing that the the revolution is a kind of solution and, and um believing that you can you know have have a revolution in your head yeah. or something like this and it's clearly not it's clearly not a kind of you know, appropriately communist or Marxist position. It makes me wonder who, who believes this. And then, it, I mean, it, okay, the obvious obvious candidates are people who aren't revolutionaries at all, but liberals. Right? I kind of think it's suggesting, namely, that liberals believe that you know purity is a state of mind, and it has nothing to do with capitalism because capitalism is fine. You know, and that's right. The, but there's a. It also occurs to me there's a kind of there's a kind of something that's not entirely dissimilar to this that one does find on the hard left, which is not quite, it's not quite the belief that, I mean, it's just going back to what I was saying before, not quite the belief that I can get out of capitalism, but th- that I'm innocent. I mean, this is something you were kind of trying to emphasize, like, namely that, but by by characterizing, characterizing myself as a kind of pure victim or pure proletarian in relation to capitalism, that all my problems are due to capitalism, but you know, I'm not responsible for any of it. Uh, so that you know, it's 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 something that's that's purely external to me, which we once once gotten rid of. Which is kind of the the opposite of the the, the liberal position, which is like uh, you know, okay, I participate and through my participation in the market, um, I find my agency. The idea of agency is something which is 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 itself untouched in in or it's touched but only in a negative way like there's a negative pattern on top of my agency but my agency somehow authentically is is outside of capitalism which is is wrong right i mean the 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 serious logic of understanding capitalism would for example so for example if we wanted to say that capitalism is you know interpenetrated with with racism and and so on the the obvious place to go with that would be to say well under capitalism we're all infected with racism and that the only way out of racism is to get rid of capitalism which people typically say that the second bit but the the first bit i feel like which certainly some people have said seems to be lost and that you know if if you're if you're a racist you're one of a small number of people who are actively willing capitalist racism into existence through their bad thoughts which is you know not a marxist analysis at all but but very prevalent on the current left you know if i'm talking about anything it's it's the kind of difficult to get rid of vestige of a liberalism uh in what is supposed to be a non-liberal or anti-liberal kind of marxism and so forth that's really important because the logic of what I was just saying didn't occur to me at the time. The logic of what I was just saying is we are all infected with liberalism. I'm sorry to <laughs> use this this kind of viral analogy again, but it, existing in capitalism, and again, I'm conceding the thing I don't want to concede, which is that capitalism is totalizing. 
but regardless of that, I mean, we, we all are, and I think, you know, Richard Rorty is right about this to this extent, that our, our horizons are genuinely trapped in our, in our kind of social epoch in, in, in liberalism. Right. Like to to not be liberal is 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 so difficult that even people with the most illiberal ideologies in Western society, nonetheless, you know, actually have them in a very liberal way. So, if, I mean, what I mean by this is either communism or fascism in the contemporary variants. You look at people who are trying to be fascist online; they can only just about manage it. Like American, you know, alt right types. Like they, they really have to try hard to say, actually, I don't agree with the Constitution because, you know, and most of them don't go that. For most of them, are like, oh yeah, the Constitution's good because it's racist or something, you know, something like that. Which is, I mean, sure, it's true. Yeah. But, I mean, this goes to a, to a point that I I really like to emphasize, uh, which is that you know, it's liberalism is the racist ideology. Yes. This is what people, uh, you know, everyone seems to have you know, kind of become terminally confused about yes. this. Racism, racism is, is associated by everyone now with fascism. And what that leads to is, you know, a t- total ignorance of the, the reality that's staring you in the face, that the whole history of, like, slavery in America, it wasn't because the South was fascist. It's because they were really liberal. Yes, absolutely. Right? It's, it's markets that led to that, which probably is the worst form of slavery that ever existed. It's probably much worse than other forms of slavery, not that they were fantastic, but... It's the unbridled market which led to this, and and liberalism is is busy exculpating itself by pointing at, at fascism. And conversely, the you know people who are supposedly communist and anti-liberals are jumping on board with this because again they're they're congenitally liberal. I like communists in our society, although they like to larp as as being you know Leninists, they've they've they, they've got the hats, James. You know, don't shrug. They're they're jet, literally, literally larping in some cases. It's it's not the Russian Revolution. It's kind of it's liberalism on steroids. Mark, I, I couldn't agree with you more about this. Actually, I I think yeah the the liberalism that is present in kind of new forms of 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 kind of fascism or quasi fascism is uh, really evident in the sense that I think when I when you when you see people kind of lurching towards fascism or, or thinking thinking of, of of a kind of I I, I, don't, I don't know sort of right-wing populism i think its origins are often clearly in a kind of resentful desire for an identity politics right that you often get it's it's kind of like uh, white people who are kind of like no we need our own identity politics right and that leads us to ethno-nationalism and the flirtation with fascism right their true desire is to say uh, we too are the victims of history and society, or something, something, something like that. Like it's there's a, there's an, there's an envy, uh, I think, in a in a lot of uh, racist fascism of uh, groups that have been the victims of things like like um, racism. That there's a there's a desire for a kind of liberal identity politics, even even and especially I think amongst the kind of uh, young fascist in making. Yeah, that's right. It reminds me of the 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 figure in American History X of the you know the the, the young, young brother who tries to do a book report about why Mein Kampf is uh, kind of a civil rights text, and that young boy grew up to be Richard Spencer. <laughs> I, I think I think that's really interesting, Brian. About about 
I think there's something also to be said there in regards to the, the history of the internet. What that is, I don't actually know. But I think the ways in which, you know, I'm fairly suspicious of the kind of, you know, typical narratives about the alt-right and all this kind of stuff and how they lurked on 4chan and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, there's a dimension of truth to it in the sense that a lot of the young sort of fascist sympathisers did grow up online in certain avenues of the internet. And I think there is, I think, the, I haven't read this book, but I think this is covered in the book. What's it called? Is it Kill All Normies? Is that what it's called? I have read that book and I, I recommend it. I mean, I feel like this, you know, the, t- the title of that book kind of gives you the clue that, that, and this is something we talked about already, that the urge here is essentially transgressive. Yeah. But that's that's what's being tapped into here. And the the great paradox of this is is that, you know, all the attempts to, to stifle it merely increase its look. But the, the more you ban it, the more you suppress it, the more transgressive it becomes, which is which is the the origin of this move of discourse into into a kind of youth culture. I mean, this kind of the 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 happy merchant meme, for example, which is is like a you know it's an it's an anti-Semitic caricature that I think I think it comes from the the wharf and the um uh, Tom Metzger's uh, White Aryan Resistance publication. It's like incredibly niche. I didn't know about this because Louis Theroux did um, a number of episodes i guess different docos with this this guy who's like you know the, the, the most virulent racist in the united states like really extreme even by the standards of the u.s far right but that that drawing of a, a kind of caricature of a jew became like a very you know serious meme i mean obviously far right meme but that that move of these this kind of stuff that was around i mean you know I've, and i've been because i've because i was on the far left i was you know for a long time a kind of connoisseur of the far right online because there's this 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 kind of mutual fascination. So, you know, reading. I mean, what's the what's the anti anti fascist blog in Australia? Slack bastard. I used to read that a lot. For example, you know, it, it's it's a kind of exemplar of the extent to which a lot of people on the far left are absolutely fascinated by the far right, and, and in a negative way, like they want to oppose them. So they, but I used to I used to lurk on these far right forums and and, and read stuff and, and be horrified. Uh, but in somehow there's some resonance in the in the the horror, right? But yeah, like. This this kind of far right stuff that was just like you know limited um, in in the orts to you know kind of what you generally think of the far right these dis- disaffected knuckle dragging skinheads who can barely type suddenly became really popular with the kind of edgy young people and I was about to say white but not even I mean one of the funniest things a lot of these people a lot of the people in this kind of right circuit aren't white they skew white. But the the diversity there is is similar to the internet in general these days. So a lot of trans people in that space, a lot of gay people, um, women, not so much actually, but still there. And but definitely non-white people, uh, despite the fact they're trafficking in in this this kind of stuff, which originates in in you know the most virulent um, kind of neo neo Nazism. But it's become a meme. So it's. It's um, it's it's exploited as such. I mean, one of the I think one one of the mistakes really here is just to take. I mean, this goes back to something I've been saying before, and now now said in print and and so on. I just think this this taking this stuff literally is um, it's a it's a politico strategic error, like thinking that every young person who you know posts a swastika online because they're trolling someone is a Nazi. This is something that that people believe because they want to believe it, because they want to believe that 
they they want to believe in the 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 enemy, which actually you know decided to to actualize this threat. Like the Charlottesville, Virginia, that those that rally, the Unite the Right rally, actually made it look like there's going to be a fascist takeover of the United States. Like we're going to have you know Nuremberg rallies and the Nazis going to take over. When it was, I mean, it was essentially a LARP. You know, obviously, tragic consequences, but the bottom line is it was never it was never a serious political threat tiny number of people disorganized fragmented this and and never repeated like it, the the reaction to that was such that the cancellations that came off the back of that and actually that that was the absolute high watermark of that that movement in the united states that the alt riders basically never recovered from have, holding that rally it, it had really you know implosive consequences for them this, I mean, there's a, there's a desperate desire to believe in this this substantialization of the enemy. Just you know, the, the literal white fascist heterosexual male who is you know an out and out white supremacist who can be defeated, uh, rather than believe in intractable problems. And here we're one step beyond this kind of like me complaining about people being anti-capitalist. I mean, because the, the real problem here is people who say they're anti-capitalist, but actually they're fixated not on capitalism at all. They're fixated on not not abstract capital, which is the kind of real problem, which I believe is a real problem. But this boogeyman, which um, I mean, it's, uh, it's often asked um, in far right circles, why Richard Spencer hasn't been cancelled yet? Like, why? Why is? I mean, of course he's been <laughs> he's 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 been cancelled in the sense he's not exactly persona grata, right? Like he's you know he's not getting invited to Hollywood parties, but he's still allowed to keep his Twitter account when you know so many people have been banned. I mean, I, I think the the total banning of this speech would leave a really palpable gap. Like if you if you literally didn't have anyone spewing right wing hate speech. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you ban the most virulent forms, but if no one was taking that position, that ideal position of I am, you're an out-and-out white nationalist online who could, people can point to and say this is the this is the real threat to America. I mean, one could say Trump is now you know, Trump is now moving into this space himself. But um, again, you, you need someone to be there because if they if they didn't have someone there, um, what what would we hear behind? No, I just wanted to backtrack slightly on what you said. I think that this might potentially answer some, not answer, but at least elaborate on some of the things you've said. I think I'm interested to know what both of you think about this because I could be wrong here, but I have had this theory that for a while now that a lot of this comes because you talked about, you know, taking the alt-right seriously and the dangers of that. And I think this comes down to, again, the history of the internet and this and, and what trolling actually is. And, you know, trolling begins as a sort of an ironic kind of chaotic um, act. Whereas when, when you say, when you, when not so you don't hear it so much these days, but a few years ago, when you heard the term don't feed the troll, what it actually meant was don't engage with the person you disagree with, not don't engage with the forces of chaos, which is kind of really what the troll is originally. Um, it, it, it doesn't actually stand for anything, uh, the, the, the original troll. Um, so I think, I think, but I think that's it, is that there, there's, a, there's a kind of, there's a, this strain of irony within the early uh, sort of internet subcultures, which is then, which then transforms into a kind of sincerity. I think not only by the people who are sort of looking aghast, but also by some of the practitioners themselves. And I don't, how, I don't but I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems to me that there's, a, there's been a shift in how we actually deal with 
what is what was ostensibly irony at first, which is not to excuse it, but it seems to me there's fu- something fundamentally different happening now as there was even 10 years ago, but in particular 20 years ago. I think Marx, Marx made a couple of important points. One of them is about the depravities of, of liberalism. Like I think, I think you're completely correct, especially in the American context, to, to link uh, liberalism to uh, slavery. But liberalism has always needed a kind of supplement and things that we call fascist are often the supplement it will reach for, particularly <coughs> in times like um, uh, to offset and kind of distract from the brutalities that come from kind of business of business as usual liberal capitalism. And I think a second point in relation to that is I think it is true, but this is also where I have some ambivalence. It is true. I think there is a desire, I'd go so far as to say a fantasy among liberals and the liberal left um, to have substantivized fascist opponents because these people operate exactly what Mark was criticizing before before, under the false belief that liberalism is the natural enemy of fascism. And as opposed to what I think is actually true, which is that which lays the groundwork for it, that which will always kind of lurch towards it in the face of certain crises and so forth. It is true that we read this phenomenon, people do want, want there to be fascists that you can oppose, especially online fascists, right? Like as in, as in if I'm kind of, as in it means my, my, posting if if there are substantially existing kind of online fascist my my of such fascist uh, can be conceived sort of narcissistically as if i am engaging in uh, the spanish civil war right like and i'm on the republican side i've done the that's one thing second i think there's the question of the whole issue of trolling you mentioned angela nagel and 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 the way certain uh, a certain kind of desire for transgression and a kind of aesthetics of transgression leads to the proliferation of of troll like phenomena that that then that then can occasionally get mistaken given the liberal fantasy for the rise of the of the substantial fascist movement the thing that makes me ambivalent though is I also think it's quite possible that there are tendencies in the present that may head towards actual fascism, right? And this is and and it it's it's the fact that all of these things are so difficult to to disentangle, which which makes me cautious about about talking about this, like like identifying exactly what is going on when politics is also involved with elements of social fantasy like one of the things that i think is going on is years of depoliticization or not just not just depoliticization in a sense that means something like apathy but the absence of a kind of meaningful polis right like it's essentially the fact that we are liberalism means especially under neoliberalism the governance of the economy right and i think what we look for in such a situation is an idea that we can have meaningful political or moral activity and the idea that there are fascists to challenge and fight against plays into that fantasy but there's also a sort of lacanian part of me that wants to say you know that desire can be 
paranoid in certain ways and there can also be a lurking threat of fascism that those things are not mutually um exclusive and that's what i think makes the whole thing so fraught that last point brian i think is absolutely right and on the money and needs to be emphasized that um i think it, it, we do we are faced with this dual structure there's a, a there's a real danger of fascism and i think i, I need to obviously say that in, in addition to my comments about how i think we you know overly obsessed with with the kind of vision of fascism, this kind of cartoonish vision of fascism. Nonetheless, it's a, it remains a real danger, including the things we think are cartoonish are remain genuinely dangerous. My assessment, though, is that there are much bigger dangers, um, and not just dangers, but yes. actualities. I mean, this is the this is the problem. It can, you know, this kind of phantasmic danger of of fascism is um, take, takes one's eye off the board of what is actually happening. I mean, I think there's a tendency to read the the present in the United States that by the left to read the present as incipient fascism. So to see, see what is dangerous in the present as what might lead towards yes. something else rather than what is actually happening being the danger, which in fact has produced the phenomenon of Trump being the one who speaks about what is actually happening, even through the, even if through like a crazy hyperbolic logic, he actually speaks to, you know, what is actually happening in America is, you know, the opioid epidemic, suicide epidemic, you know, mass unemployment, this kind of thing. I mean, these kind of phenomena, which, which um, admittedly Trump doesn't address them very successfully, but he talks about them rather than vilifying the white working class, let's say. It's not clear to me that taking the threat of fascism seriously has much to do with what is called anti-fascism. You know, the, the idea that, you know, as long as we don't let Marlo Yiannopoulos speak on a university campus, then we'll be protected against against America becoming fascist. Seems to me to grossly fail to understand how how a fascist takeover would actually happen. Right, um, removing statues is not going to prevent it. In, you know, at all. In fact, I mean, I think the opposite is possibly the case. Namely, that the the actions that are left taking currently under the name of anti fascism are, you know, lead in the direction of of um, you know the, the Reichstag fire rather than rather than stopping Hitler. I mean, th- and this this is something that that drives me crazy actually, which is the bizarre historical framing of anti-fascist politics, which explicitly refers back to the original anti-fascist actio and the original anti-fa in 1930s Germany, and says. The German experience of Nazism proves that only physical action of this type modeled on the German Antifa can prevent fascism. When empirically, what happened was that that strategy was an abject failure and resulted in the rise of Hitler. I mean, it's not to say that there is no form of anti-fascist action you should take part in, but the, the historical narrative there is as ludicrous as it could possibly be this justification through a historical example which demonstrates the exact actually what is even the reference point there as in when they say 1930s anti anti-fascist i mean it's it's pretty clear to me how this logic works which is to say that they borrow the symbols from the the german anti-fascist action this this attempt to do street fighting against nazis which failed because the nazis won like the nazis won the streets um, that that was a uh, like a failed mechanism. Of course, the the standard claim then is well, the problem was, uh, you know, third period common turn. The fact that you know Stalin was unwilling to ally with the Social Democrats, which then feeds into this kind of logic we've been alluding to, but haven't really dealt with head on, which is to say that uh, no, in the face of fascism, communists have to ally with everybody, including liberals of all stripes, because 
being sectarian when faced with fascism allows the fascists to take over. But what that means is that in practice, as soon as you mention the signifier fascist, you can completely demobilize left-wing opposition to capital, basically. I think this is, this is the way this logic works. As soon as you say, oh, there's a threat of fascism, then you go, oh, well, we can't be sectarian anymore. We have to ally with people who have the exact opposite politics with us because there's this even worse version of politics, fascism. Uh, and that's, that's the way that work, that's worked. And I think the actual historical example people tend to bring up here which I think is pretty facile, but does point in the direction they talk about is the Battle of Cable Street, so-called in London, um, where you know communists uh, stood with the Jewish community against a March Bales or Mosley's black shirts. I mean, the reason I think that's a really facile example is that the black shirts were never a really serious political force in England. So the idea that there was, an, you know, like going to be a fascist takeover in the UK, but it was defeat, defeated by street action, is just not. It's just fanciful. In all the countries where fascism was a serious social force, Italy. Germany, Spain, Italy, okay, the left didn't really oppose it. You could say there was a mistake there and they could have. But in Germany and Spain, you cannot say that there wasn't an attempt to physically oppose fascism. I mean, Spain is perhaps probably the best example. Like, you can't physically oppose fascism much more than that. But it's pretty clear that it didn't work. And it's, I mean, again, you can kind of blame Stalinism for it. But I, I think, um, like obviously, if there's that actual rise of fascism, I'm not saying we should just meekly accept it. But the idea that just we need to get in early and hard on the physical violence, which seems to be the logic that's now followed, I think is just without any kind of empirical basis. And this goes back to something else, which is it's much more about the id than the ego, right? It's, it's, it's much less rational and much more about just the desire to have a, someone to fight and un unleash our, our energies on which uh, on the contemporary left are generally very constrained because everything is, uh, you know, we're... we're under so many rules of things we, we can't do that otherwise would, would be a form of libidinal exercise. It's one of the things that you fear here that once you identify the threat of fascism, that uh, if that leads you to go, okay, so now is not the time for sectarianism, that ultimately this will benefit standard liberal powers that be like i suppose w w what i'm thinking of here is is people's concerns for example that um which do not come out for, of a sense of any illegitimacy in the in the black lives matter protest but people witnessing like the attempts of you know the democratic party and standard kind of professional managerial class kind of woke capital to say this is why weirdly never not entirely sure of the logic of this but that you must unite be behind us this is why a biden presidency is more important than ever like like do, do, do you feel that the vector of fascism perhaps often uh, leads to an advantage for a kind of liberal establishment in in terms of now i can worry about this future threat and not the actual crises and inequities produced by said liberal establishment they gets them off the hook to some extent yes <laughs> look i mean i want to i want to invoke chomsky's propaganda model here a little bit and just say like i don't i don't think there's necessarily that much forethought in it i mean it's not like i mean cnn amplify this stuff because it gets clicks yes. not because they they're involved in a grand conspiracy so i don't i don't think liberals are involved in the grand conspiracy, but I, I just think it's, um, it's cohered this way. And it's really important that, you know, while you, you can have McDonald's promoting, you know, 
Black Trans Lives Matter, the one thing you're not going to get woke capital behind is anti-capitalism. That that's that yes. hasn't yet yes. happened. And it can't happen. And just just by the logic of, of the institution, in a situation of crisis, you can expect them to go along with this other stuff because it's what they can go along with and what they can try to put their brand behind. And that's likely to be successful given the weight of their their you know propaganda capabilities through the mass media. But I think like to circle to circle back to what we were talking about at the beginning, I think you know, there's a real risk here in this, and I think this touches on what I think it, I can't remember if it was Mark or Brian, but to the category fascism or the term fascism comes, especially on the internet, it comes to designate a whole bunch of stuff that it covers the fact that the, the genuine instances of potential fascism that might be emerging, you know, the uh, the spectre of fascism. Um, online, as it were, which you know feeds into the the genre of anti anti fascism and indeed the alt right, could mean a whole number of things. But then, and as you say, you know, it doesn't actually touch upon what is actually happening on the ground, and that feeds in, I think, into what you were talking about in regards to you know woke capital. You know, woke capital would invoke, can invoke, and indeed does, an idea of fascism which actually has very little to do with fascism per se. Um, but then, of course, becomes another commodity to exchange on the internet while the world burns. It's kind of turning me into a Marxist. <laughs> Performatively white capital. The fact it won't touch class basically shows Marx is right. Yes. And, and like a fairly orthodox version yes. of Marxism is right about uh, political economy, mainly that this, you know, ev- everything else can, can be managed. That, that, that actually is the core contradiction. And it has been all along. And I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of always suspected, but uh, it's like a confirmation. Remember that book? It's often detested on the, on the left by um, what Walter Ben Michaels called uh, uh, the trouble with with diversity. Right? It's a book that begins. I, I just want to tell an anecdote from it. So he's at, he's at, uh, I think Harvard, right? And he's saying, you know, this this place, and this is an excellent thing. You know, this elite is so much more diverse in many ways than when I was here in the 70s, right? Except in one obvious respect, and he's like, you know, and I commend, you know, it being more diverse, where it is in fact got much less diverse, and that is obviously in relation to to class. And he goes on to say that, you know, one of the, the, the problems with, I, I suppose, what we could, we could call a sort of neoliberal managerial paradigm uh, is that, is that he's like, you cannot talk about class in terms of diversity. He's like, here at Harvard, we have like Latino house and, uh, you know, African-American house. He, he says, imagine having poor house, right? Like the, the, the thing about the thing about class things is, is, is you can't identify with them, right? Like you, you want to, you want to abolish it. You want to take yeah, the thing that the other person has or, or, or something like that. So it, that's, that's why it remains kind of utterly recalcitrant to these kinds of managerial things. Yeah, no, this, there has been some, there is this really interesting kind of um, social justice inflection towards counting as one of the ills that it's opposed to classism, right, which, which goes alongside racism, you know, sexism and so on. And What's interesting about that, I mean, I think actually, so maybe, you know, this guy's right, maybe Harvard in that era hadn't addressed this, but there, there is definitely an attempt by universities to address this, right? Uh, you know, the, the idea that we need to encourage working class people to, to come in as students. And you, you can achieve a certain amount of diversity from that point of view. The, the problem is, though, that if education is at all successful, 
it, it won't because because you know it's it's meritocratic liberalism. Okay, we'll we'll encourage people with with lower levels of opportunity to come in, but it won't actually challenge the existence of the class hierarchy. It will really diversify the ruling class in terms of their class origins. And there is this extent to which absolutely, you know, class origin is part of your identity and 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 can be, you know, commodifiable as such. I mean, you can go, like, you know, you can be, admittedly, it's not as fashionable uh, nor as power, potent as these, you know, other other bearers of, of diversity. But nonetheless, you absolutely can. People have been doing this for a long time and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm working class and that's that's my my USP. The, the irony is once you when if you're successful with that strategy you you you, know, you can always say i grew up working class but of course you know <laughs> i mean it depends what one thinks class is and once if, if you understand class in those terms it's no longer an economic category and it's become a, a cultural category or something like that uh where in fact the core meaning of class in like a marxist sense you know doesn't mean that at all it means you're precisely that you're not the person up there selling selling their class as a brand that's been episode five of Metacritique, in which I was joined as always by James Kent and once again by Brian Cook for a second time. Thanks so much, Brian and James, for being here.